Today's episode is mainly about one character, Karthar Long. The discussion has followed us up to the fourth book in the Book of the Fallen, House of Chains. Please note that this episode, uh, just like the source material, covers a fair amount of sensitive topics like rape, violence and body horror. Anyway, we hope you enjoy the discussion. Hi Lee, thanks for joining me. So, Karsa Orlog, uh, what was your first impression when you read the book for the first time? Uh, my first read, I actually sped through most of the books early on. So, I was just churning through the books. I didn't pay too much attention on every individual character. Karsa, on the one hand, he's, you know, this cool stereotypical barbarian that slaughters fools and children. And on one hand, he it's a bit hard to deny that he's badass. He does actually, he's not just talking out his ass, and he does actually have the skills required to um, live up to his words. On the other hand, many of his actions are reprehensible and not particularly great. So it was mostly on retrospect that I actually ended up um, thinking more about Karza. When I read House of Change, I was like, okay, yeah, let's go kick some witness and shit. Then I got the Bone Hunters and Reaper Scale, and I started thinking more about Karsa. And like, hang on, this that wasn't good. I should not be rooting for this guy. Not then. So I think when I was actually reading How to Change for the first time, I wasn't too uh, apprehensive of Karsa. But as the books went on, as this you weren't put off by all this. I was slightly. I mean, at the start, I was. But it's like, okay, yeah, it's fine. He's a barbarian, you know. I, I, we went through this house gates, and there was some standard set up about the levels of brutality in the series, and. In hindsight, uh, compared to like the Seven Sisters Rebellion or the Panion Domin, Garza is a bit on the low side. So on one hand, it is a bit, you know, it's not very nice. On the other hand, it seems to be generally accepted, so to speak, because it's tribal warfare. You know, it's, this sort of thing happens between the Diablo. When he went goes on his raid on uh, Silver Lake is when things start going downhill. But by then, you're kind of more or less accepted that Garza is this way and you can now stick with him for a bit. So... I was not the biggest fan of Casa at the start, but I think my image of him only solidified until I got in like book six or book seven. And if you're wondering, the image is not particularly great. Certainly not for how to change. I was not the biggest fan of Casa at the time. Let's just say that. Your experience might be different. Yeah, it was very different. I couldn't stand him at all, you know? Indeed. Uh, I, I, had a, I, I had some idea that Casa is this, you know, fan favorite character and all. Because so many people on the subreddit have Kasa yes. in their name. Yes. Kasa and Witness and stuff. But anyway, I thought, okay, so Kasa is this, uh, you know, extremely nice guy, somebody like Anamander Rake or something. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was really looking forward to his story. And yeah, it, it was extremely <laughs> disillusioning, you know, when yes. I started reading. And yeah, obviously, I guess about halfway that when he says children, that he actually means like normal human people. I was... But then I was also wondering, how is his horse so big? And then that turns out to be a separate plot point, you know, which was really nice having this jag horses and stuff. Yeah, so this is, that's how it started, actually. I couldn't stand Karsa. I, I didn't want to read about him. And, you know, it just took slowly, just in those four chapters, you know, it slowly started shifting from can't stand the guy, can't listen to him, you know, talking arrogantly and all. And I was, mm-hmm. I think I've told you this. I was so sure that Bayroth is going to be the ultimate hero. <laughs> Kasa is going to get killed pretty soon, right? So that is what I was expecting because, because Bayroth was, you know, he was the one who was actually smart and 
who knew who had mm-hmm. his eyes open basically he guessed that silver lake is Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know their information about silver lake is quite old and all those things <laughs> which should be you know in hindsight common sense that palak when he read 400 years ago and <laughs> things should have probably changed <laughs> <laughs> yeah they they expected the change to be small right so, yeah like maybe there are a few more farmhouses yeah garza was like a uh, palak went like and raided like two farmhouses and i'm going to find three or four it's going to be so much better <laughs> And yeah, it's about a whole town with like yeah. fortification and stuff. It's it's actually an enclosed town now. Yes, yes. And to their luck, I think they had Malazans standing there at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so there was ultimate bad luck for them to pop in at that time. But yeah, by the end of it, after him meeting Torvald and all the other stuff, mm-hmm. I I was completely behind Karsa, Team Karsa, you know. So mm-hmm. it it always made me curious, even when I read that time. Uh, the first time also that how in these like 100 200 pages how was i able to change my mind 180 degrees from absolutely hating the guy to being you know a proper fan yeah so that, that's what i was trying to look for in this reread then how did you find the reread now were you still thinking he's a badass or was it hard to get through some of the stuff i mean i wouldn't say hard i mean after getting the entire series it's a bit easier because again in the grand scheme of things Carsa's story is very personal his brutalities his atrocities are on a very personal level against the lowlanders against the the the, the, um, the sunid or some such not an entire continent's worth like in the other books on the other hand this does not do much to lessen the impact of um all the bad stuff he does yeah but the difference is with Carsa you see it you know from the driver's seat that is also true yeah yeah that, i think that was the hardest part it's one thing to just read bidital doing all this stuff mm-hmm. but another thing to you know actually see everything from karsa's pov him going around slicing people and raping people and stuff mhm i i i didn't find it easier even this time it's interesting because at, when i first actually i remember very vividly that on my first read i took notice of like him saying i'm going to go slay children and i was somehow okay with it because it hasn't exactly ticked on my mind that Karsa is small. He always seemed and behaved as if he was a giant. So I was like, okay, he doesn't mean actual children, does he? <laughs> and then there was like, uh, House of Chains, actually. Chapter 1 opens up with a child being sacrificed to face in the rock. And I'm like, hang on, what if he actually does mean children? <laughs> and thankfully, that was quickly dispelled because Karsa is apparently seven foot tall or something. So yeah. it did actually end up mattering. But... I started to be like, oh yeah, you know, he's just going to sleep children. And then the realization strikes me that he's going to kill children and then it's fine because children are actually just normal people. So, which leads us to the start of Scarlet's story, right? He's you would think Carter behaves. Uh, I think in the house gates, Leoman refers to him as 17. Yeah. When in truth Carter is 80. <laughs> so, yeah, they age slowly. They age slowly, yeah, but like There's obviously a very big difference between the two because Carsa is not some 18-year-old out for glory. He's an 80-year-old out for glory. Yeah, but he's an 80-year-old behaving exactly like a 17-year-old, right? To be fair, for Tebler's standards, yes, he is barely an adolescent, but... He doesn't like <laughs> Heborica and he says, I'm not going to talk to you. <laughs> That's exactly something an 18-year-old would do. <laughs> Sorry, continue, please. So, he he also has an idol, right? In uh, Palk? And yeah. also detests Sinig, his father, because he sees him as a weakling, as someone who does not want to continue the tribal legacy of Palk and his raids, which were, again, four centuries ago. This is important to stress that 
Bulk's last trade, <laughs> and possibly the first one, was 400 years ago. And pretty much that was the best trade in that ever have done on Lowlander land ever. So the signs of stagnation are present. The signs of decadence are present. But everyone, seemingly, at least everyone that isn't uh, Cynic or Byleth, seems to be completely impervious to the whole thing that's going on. Like, oh, yeah, you know, just it's fine. We went on raid 400 years ago. We're going to do it again. It's fine. It's going to be great. Yeah, I think 400 years is what? Maybe like 20 years in our time? I mean, 400 years for the Tableau, if we take that adult Tableau 80 years old, that'd be five adults, which is 80 years. So it's not that huge a discrepancy, but it's like two generations, right? So his last trade was two generations ago, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to do it again. It's going to be great. You know, but that's the point of Tableau society, right? They are in stasis. Yeah. For whatever reason, with all the, you know, whatever was there in the cave writings, this is what mm-hmm. they have decided. They want to stay in stasis mm-hmm. and sort of become... You know, just consolidate their uh, numbers, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that they think that nothing is changing. The outside world is the same because their inside world is the same. Yes. And they don't have contact with anyone else also, right? Not that I know of. No, beyond the faces in the rock, there's no other um, contact. I think even with the other tribes, it's occasional and it's usually just raiding and stuff. Yeah, it's usually, yeah, yeah. So let's take it from... That's our, our prelude, so to speak. So... Carter's journey starts off, and he's in the Leatheron Plateau, in the Urid village or whatever. So we learn that the faces of the rock are the gods of all the Teblo, not just the Urid. And we sort of have this idea that, because the first interaction we have with the faces in the rock is that they are having children sacrificed to them, that they don't, they're not particularly great people. Yeah, true. So we actually learn a few things about Carter's family. Uh, slowly. For one, we have uh, Cynic, his father, who he hates. Yeah. He sees as a weakling and someone who doesn't actually want to continue Tebra society and Tebra legacy that was left off behind by his father. Now, we learned that Cynic has actually taught Karsa quite a few things. How to ride, how to dance with a sword. The sword dance, yeah, yeah. The martial arts and stuff. And Karsa's like, yeah, that's what everyone should do. That's the <laughs> standard for a father in Tebra society. No, my father should be a warrior like my granddad and like I will be and stuff. And we know that Karsa's mother is actually dead. And only later do we learn that Karsa's mother died by Sibal's hand. Because she was... Or Sibale. I don't actually know. One, one of the tableau gods, basically. Yes, because she was finding out that the children that were being sacrificed weren't actually sacrificed. Hmm. And so they killed her. Sinig is pretty much on the same trail and has an idea. But doesn't act on it so he won't die. <laughs> so we know that much of Karsa's story. Yeah, but you know what uh, What you realize? Because both his parents are pretty rational thinkers, right? Mm-hmm. So him being really smart and uh, able to strategize so well and all his, you know, quick language learning prowess and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has really smart parents. His grandfather is a coward and uh, idiot. But I think his parents are, you know... I think calling him an idiot is a bit of a... <laughs> bad, really. Uh, so... In a way, Falk is basically the personification of everything that's wrong with Tabor society. And eventually, sort of becomes the mirror that Carlsa sees civilization through, right? Because Falk essentially embodies, uh, embodies in Tabor society what is stagnation, essentially, where they go on raids because that's the right thing to do. Because that is what they've been taught by their forefathers. Because that's what they're good at, trading or raising sheep or any of that. Uh, they're warriors. They must raid. Because that's what they took from those cave writings you mentioned earlier that we find later. Sinig and Kars' mother go against that and Kars views them as failures because 
well, his father doesn't seem particularly in high esteem by the other uh, members of the tribe, or Palk, and his mother's dead. In one, on one hand, yes, Palk isn't the smartest individual. On the other hand, he's also a product of Tebra society, just like Karsa is. So, uh, the thing is, Palk seems to be the only one who has actually gone on a raid, right? So uh, It was a solo raid, yes. I mean, not just solo, but in the entire tribe. I don't know if anyone else has done it before, I presume. Uh, it's just that it seems really odd that Karsa is so angry with his dad when, you know, nobody else has actually done anything. It, it's a little misplaced, but then he's really young, so... Uh, I think Palk's novelty that he went on a raid against Lowlanders, where he is, everyone else basically kept the infighting with the Tebler. Uh Because you may remember, again, in the cave writings, I'm skipping ahead again, in the cave writings, they say that we will legitimize rape because we need to clean the blood. And yeah. so different tribes will raid one another and then forcefully meet with the women of the other tribe so as to clean the blood of the Tebler and make it cleaner and not mix with Lowlanders. When Palk went on a raid on Lowlanders, that hadn't been done before because they hadn't been taught how to do that or why they should do that. Yeah, but even when he went to the uh, Rathid, what, what do you call that tribe? Yeah, Rathid. Yeah, even when he goes to that tribe, he doesn't really, you know, raid them. He just asks them for a for safe passage and just moves on, right? I don't know, Palk is... Yeah, contrast that to what Byroth later tells Karsa. When they return, they should say that their elders came to meet them, that their elders were there and blessed them. Because the point of the raid shouldn't be to sow discontent and discord among the Tebler tribes. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. In a way, if Palk told them that, guys, I went over to the Rathid, begged them for food and passed <laughs> killed them, and then went down to the Lord and did the same thing, he'd look stupid. So, <laughs> on the one hand, he's after personal glory, because he wants to glorify himself as this great conqueror and stuff. On the other hand, if he lies, there could be a great uh, rift between the Urid. Yeah, but... What's next? We're going to waste war party. Yeah. I'll leave that to you, because you seem to quite like Byroth. Oh, Byroth is the man. I mean, okay, so Byroth, for one thing, he's actually smart. Mm-hmm. Compared to the other tableau and all, uh, his speaking style, everything is different. He sort of sounds like a modern character, you know? He's sarcastic, and he talks with nuance. At one point, I believe he says uh, something like, Karsa, I hope you never ever experience doubt or something. And the next sentence he says, No, I, I lied. lied. I wish you learn some doubt and, you know, grow grow your wisdom through doubts and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was really rooting for that guy. So, so Bairoth and Dilem. So, this was a nice party, but I maybe Dilem was sort of superfluous. I'm not really sure what was his role in their party, actually. Probably his brain damage allowed... Karsa to imitate him when they start going on that uh, long ship journey, right? Other than that, I don't see the role of uh, Dilem in this particular war party. Probably because uh, was he part of the game they played? Was Dilem a played character? I'm not sure. I think uh, Karsa was the only player who played character among the so three. The other two were just created for the book? The other, yeah. The other two were created from Steve as NPCs to accompany Karsa. Oh, so these characters were part of the game, right? So that's why they must have I, included I this. think so. He really doesn't have an actual role in the story. I don't know if I agree with that. So, Byroth obviously talks with new ones and is sarcastic and is very caustic and um, he judges Karsa a lot. On the one hand, he's pretty much obliged, by, obligated rather, by his role as a second to the war leader to obey him and follow his commands. On the other hand, he 
disagrees a lot. <laughs> and also has a professional conflict of interest because he's betrothed and then he's going to be married to the girl that Carsa wants. And there's a conflict there. Dilum, on the other hand, doesn't have that. Dilum is just there to provide wisdom and he's a capable tracker. He hunts for game. He's cunning and smart in his own way because you may remember Carsa uh, took him along on to find the, the, the dogs and he's like, oh, you sit here and he, I trust you'll know what to do when you see me do something. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That is and good, then Carsa yeah. jumps the dog and when another dog approaches uh, Dilum kills it from like 10 meters. So, and furthermore, later in the book, when the two of them die and Carsa has his turn to Raraku and then leaves to go out to the Dragodan, um, Carsa mentions Byroth as like biting commentary but he refers to Dilum as not necessarily loyalty, but measured wisdom. Okay. The inner monologues that Kars has essentially with himself, masquerading as his friends, Dilum to him is more wise and more suitable to give him advice than Byroth is. So do you really think they're not his actual friends? Do you think it's just Kars imagining it? Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure they're actually there because of uh, different... Um, for one, the blessing on the sword, and for two... Urugal's influence. But I think in large part, he also plays them up a lot more. Okay, I, I just completely took it that they're his friends. I mean, I think they are. But, you know, their spirits are there and he has a healthy skepticism, but, you know, it's actually his friends. Mm-hmm. Right? The three of them leave. The elders don't come to meet them, which apparently pisses off Casa quite a bit. That, that was a mean thing to do, right? No matter what, these three, you, you know, they're just leaving the village and trying to do something. Can't people just come and say bye? I guess. It's like the entire village ignores them, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, after that, he goes on the to the Rathid, right? And he finds the first war party of, like, ten people and kills them apparently in one go, kills, like, four people in one go, all while sprinting on foot or something. So, I think he kills, like, eight of them. He doesn't leave anyone for the others, isn't I don't actually remember if he leaves sort any of, for the yeah, others. I think the other two get pissed off that Karsa didn't leave them any anyone to kill. And except for the youth, you know. Uh, what's his name? Uh, we don't actually know the name, but House of Chains. Then. Okay, okay. So that's that. Then he goes to the village. Right? After he essentially goes an uproar in all the tribes, which is quite smart in a way, right? Uh, yeah, that is, yeah. No, all his uh, strategies are really good. Mm-hmm. Each time he plans, the, plans anything, you know, a battle or a standoff or anything. Karsa is pretty smart in all these things. Mm-hmm. He doesn't understand sarcasm, but, you know, he's smart in all the other ways. Which is interesting, right? Because he doesn't get humor or sarcasm, but he's capable of picking up languages just by hearing people talk. He's a very capable strategist. He's a survivalist. He can ride very well. He's incredibly good with the sword. And he just doesn't get it that Taylor's bangs bite off for, like, however long it takes. <laughs> like, fuck's sake, Casa. <laughs> You know, I, didn't you feel bad for him? I, I really felt bad for him when I, don't, when I read it for the first time. Because he's such an angsty teen type of character, you know, when you first meet him. He's praying, and he's, he sounds like such a dutiful guy, he wants to do something nice for the tribe. And this girl, he has such high hopes on. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty mean to him, aren't they? When we first see them, Dalis and Beroth, they sort of laugh at him, or I think Beroth, you know, taunts him about uh, Dalis. Yes, but on the other hand, wouldn't you do the same if someone was to hit on your boyfriend or something? Like, he's mine, back off. No, but they're being mean about it. 
And they're mean about it because Kansa keeps coming back. Let's forget it. I mean, like, he doesn't get the message the first 15 times. Might as well be mean to him. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> All that happens. And then they go to the village. And that's when Kansa's first realization strikes him. That Palk's a phony, as you said in your notes. Yeah. And the women in his village aren't actually morally superior or above this. They're not particularly loyal to their men if this would happen to them as well. And what's interesting is Karsa doesn't dismiss this outright. He doesn't say, no, you're lying. Palk is actually a badass warrior and he's just mad, right? He thinks about it and remarks, this might be plausible. This might actually have happened. He doesn't fully believe it until he gets to the lake, but it's there. It's gnawing at him. Hang on, maybe Palk is actually lying. No, but maybe he just thinks that Steve's wife is trying to confuse him. He doesn't really care about it because, you know, he has 11 women in his queue. Yeah. He just listens and <laughs> doesn't care. Mm. Sorry, do I'm want, so sorry. Do, do, do you want to talk about that? I mean, we no. can talk about that <laughs> if you want. <laughs> yeah, but that one thing was nice. I, I really like the chief's wife. The way she puts him down and, you know, he's so surprised that they're not struggling or... Yeah, like, fucking, all right, yeah, I mean, which one of us is going to take your seat? Like, all of you. Um, All right, then. No, no, I mean, he's shocked that, oh, our Urid women are the greatest and they wouldn't have uh, complied like you women and stuff. And she just laughs at him, like, oh, you think your women are something, you know, they're going to behave differently (laughs) with their riders and stuff. Mm -hmm. Because it's something... uh, it's such an insulated society. That's what you're led to believe, right? That mm-hmm. you are somehow superior. Your men are somehow stronger. Your women are somehow better, more superior and more pure and stuff. Yeah, so that was nice. Uh, the chief's wife, I think she was the first one to start sh- shutting him down with his ideas about his grandfather and his tribe and stuff. <laughs> and I think, is this where we, you know, sort of get a better idea about blood oil? Uh they talk about it and how it brings like madness and stuff and a lust and battle raids and stuff to men but the effects of it last longer on women which I'm not sure if that should be the case but anyhow Otatral seems to have these sort of effects and then later when Garza uh, discusses it with a certain seven cities native with blue eyes they talk about this and this seven cities native talks about the, yeah, why are we not telling yeah. his name? When we, <laughs> okay, it's Leoman. It's yeah. Leoman, whatever. It's Leoman. So, Leoman talks about the effect of Adaral and, and on magic, and talks about this red rusty ore, and Karsa's like, hang on, we have that, we put that in our blood oil, and then he goes like, what is blood oil? Well, yeah, it's this thing that we drink before all putting our weapons, and we kiss our blade, and it gives us battle lust, and battle rage and lust, and like, hang on, too but where are you from again? It's like, Zanabagis Mountain. It's like, okay, don't tell anyone you have this, because if the Empire learns about this, you're fucked. Yeah, yeah, true. Kasa, or at least Blood Oil, seems to have magic deadening effects because of Nihazo Tazaral. I'm just wondering, how exactly do they take Blood Oil? Is it like smell, or do they have to taste it, or, you know? Uh, what does kissing this word mean? Like, just skin contact? Presumably they taste it. They taste it. Presumably, because what, uh, I think breathing it all in also works, the fumes or whatever. Or the he, rust or the yeah, he holds it to the horse and stuff, right? To... I don't know. Oh, yeah, he, he shows his uh, sword to the to Havoc to make it run mm-hmm. faster and when he's about to charge something. Yeah, uh, he... if I recall, he also holds the woman that he, you know, 
in yeah. Silver Lake to his sword, and then she goes apeshit. Not sword, his armor. Whatever it was, <laughs> I don't remember. Anyway, the point he is, yes, I guess. With blood oil, you know, his whole armor and everything. I guess breathing it in also works then. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you don't know. Maybe she, maybe she had to taste it. Who knows? It's not clear. Okay. Let's let's agree. It's not clear. It's not clear, but it seems to have certain magic deadening properties owing to the tetral inside it, right? So, Carl is anti-magic to some degree owing to the blood oil that he has, right? So, but you know, if blood oil has autotetral and all Tebdor are using it, then why is mm-hmm. he the only one who's anti-magic? He uses it by the score, apparently. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he's the only one who's anti-magic. He's the only one we see him use no, see, so excessively. The, the Sunni tribe... They're almost entirely enslaved. And nobody is worried about them being anti-magic or anything. Because they don't drink Otataral by the fucking barrel full or something. I mean, have you seen how much Karsa downs of that shit? He puts it in his armor, he drinks it, he tastes it. He, he doesn't like... drink <laughs> blood oil. I mean, okay, that's true. He doesn't. But he would if he had enough. <laughs> okay, don't don't miss the guy, please. He has other things to tell <laughs> Everything Kars seems to have is like gleaming with the amount of blood oil he puts on it. Is he the only one who is, you know, constantly... <laughs> yes! Yes! He sits on like the, des- like the desert and just like puts a blood oil on his sword like he's gonna fucking face anyone. Like he's alone <laughs> in the desert and just has enough to coat that sword. Yeah, he, he has does that a lot. Right, yeah. He has a lot of it. Of course he's anti-magic when he has a... F- like, Two liters worth of the stuff. The armor thing was a bit much, I thought. He finds that uh, ironwood armor and, and coats that entire armor. And if, it, if it works, it works. That's, I think, all on the blood oil. So, um, you may notice, if you've read the book, Garza gets captured a lot. He gets captured by Damisk and uh, Silga. He gets captured by the Malazans. He gets captured again. My count was three. Three times he gets captured. He escapes with Cleoman and then he's in the Raku and he feels chained again because of the influence of Yurigal. So he doesn't particularly seem to like that, you know, being captured business. I am getting a bit ahead of myself again. So one thing we didn't touch upon and one thing that's important to Carter's early arc is his vows. He vows to do a lot of things and some of those things end up blowing back in his face spectacularly. And the big part of his later arc is that he says, I'm done with pointless vows. I'm not going to vow that, like, every random guy that I meet is suddenly my enemy. At the very end of the book, he just, like, after all is said and done, that settles. He just walks up to the floor and, like, I have a must for the adjunct. And it's like, okay, what's up? And, like, once, like, long ago, I swore that the Malatans are my enemy and, like, no longer. And then turns around and leaves. Well, that was good. I once vowed the Malazans are my enemy, no longer. And then it just turns around and leaves. And the force is like, do we know the guy? And everyone is like, yeah, I think it's better for us that we didn't try to challenge him. <laughs> so a big part of Cass's arc in House of Chains is overcoming those figurative and literal chains and growing as a character to not do stupid things on impulse. Yeah, I think that was a good contrast with freeing calm and then not freeing the other... Oh, God, that was fucking stupid. We know it's stupid only now, but, you know, he has good reasons. <laughs> he has good He's... reasons and she turns around and kills his friend. <laughs> but, yeah, he how could he know that? 
He doesn't even blame Bairod for what happens. If you view what happened with Calum symbolically, it's Dilum was immediately ready to defend his world leader. Bairod wasn't. Which was a smart thing to do. It is a smart thing to do, but if Calm wanted Karsa dead, Karsa would die and there's nothing Bairod could do about it. So, there is a question of loyalty. Carry on. Yeah. You were saying, you wanted to say something. Yeah, uh, so we see Calm and we see that Karsa is, I don't immediately ready to free her. He thinks mm-hmm. it's an independent being who is trying to break free from this rock and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, just a slight aside. You remember when Bairoth is trying to help her stand up and Karsa stops him, saying, you know, you mm-hmm. should not be touching her. Yeah, Wasn't yeah. that mm-hmm. really amazing? He's just gone around raping so many people and then he sees this... Awfully considerate of him. Exactly. Because he, even though they called uh, that a demon in their language and all, and he has no idea of what this being is capable of. He still, you know, he has that mercy even then. And he immediately vows that he will find whoever did this to her and kill them. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the things. But, you know, much later, I think when he's walking through Telan and he sees a lot of uh, uh, Jag, was it? Who were trapped under the rocks? Or? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, he and he that. decides not to save any of them. He actually says that I'm not going to undo things which I don't understand, you know. Mm-hmm. I think almost all of the things which were set up in the first half, uh, I think we get a full circle for almost all of them. We see him being extremely protective of his gods, extremely pious, and he doesn't allow Bairoth to uh, question anything about their gods. And then ultimately, he, you know, he basically kicks them out. He kills one, yeah. Yeah. Wasn't that a nice uh, thing when they tell him the crippled god will take you and all that? And they tell him that, you know, you know, to convince him that even your crippled god is chained, so that's why you belong to this house and all. And, he's, and then he's like, I'm, I will free, I will free his from saying, I am pleased, and then I will kill him. God damn it. So yeah, that was one thing. And uh, we see nearly all of those things. He's one of his uh, gods. And then he actually, I think somewhere along the way, he starts realizing that it's not always good to, you know, open your mouth and tell what's happening. It's okay to lie. Too many words. Too many words. But then he thinks that words should not be deceitful. He tells exactly what he's thinking and he doesn't care yeah. about the consequences. But I think somewhere uh, with Thorwald and all that, he starts deciding. He even pretends to have lost his mind, right? Yeah. So almost his his entire character, whatever is set up in the first half, almost all of it is destroyed by the second half. He hates his father and I think at the end he thinks... I think I should go and talk to my father and to my grandfather. I'm not going to tell him anything. You know, something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't have the exact quote. Another thing I noticed about Garson's God is at some point in his journey, mm-hmm. he realizes he's been played. Right? He's been used. Yeah. Urigal uses him for his own needs. And yeah, Karsa doesn't stop. He doesn't somehow call quits on his journey and say, you know what? No, that's enough. I'm no longer going to be used by any god. That's it. Because he has vowed to see, uh, to help his god, right? to, to see through the, the mission yeah. he has. And then he takes them to the cave where they were, like, killed, basically, and left. And says, okay, now we're done. Now you're going to stop using me and the tableau, and you will have to get on devices. And, okay, that's cool for Garza, but for the Unbound, the Seven Faces of the Rock, they've been hunted by other Tlanimas, like Ondrak. Yeah. So that's trouble. They can't exactly leave him. And they keep trying to manipulate him. So Karsa just kills them. 
right? Katsa makes well, yeah, only one of them. Well, technically, he doesn't he doesn't kill her yet. He slices her in half and then puts her in a backpack and leaves. <laughs> um, when he doesn't actually believe, even when he knows for a fact that his gods are false and his gods have played him and his people, he remains not necessarily pious but loyal to the cause and the vow that he made before because it would be un it would be unlike him to go back on his vow i didn't see it as him you know trying to uphold his vow because i thought it was just him playing the whole game to see where they were leading i think he just wanted to see it to the end um not sure anyway um for that right for that matter he could do the very same with a lot of other sort of things like you know slavery and malazans but he was always very eager to be rid of him of his of the chains that were you know um, holding him, and Hirogel is the first and be- the first person that puts the most chains on Katza. The ghosts that Heboric sees trailing him are Hirogel's doing. He is en- encumbered in a way by these souls of the people he killed. So if it was up to Katza, if he didn't, I I think this is necessarily true. But I think if he hadn't vowed to do anything with Imas, he would have just said, "Okay, enough, <laughs> leave me alone." And if you don't, I'll kill you. Yeah, but I thought he wanted to, because they were uh, cheating the entire Teplord, right? So probably he wanted to take it to the end and see exactly what they were up to. Maybe. Maybe. But I, mean, I think he could just probably strong arm them away from the entire Teplord if he wanted. But uh, maybe you're right. I think it's much more probable that you're right. But that's my take on it. Um, Do you want to talk about the dogs? Yet another one of uh, Karsa's stupid vows that he vows that uh, the three-legged dog will be <laughs> getting fat in his fireplace and it dies like 20 pages later. That it will be so. And oh. <laughs> the dog dies. Oh, that's really sad, yeah. It's a learning experience for Karsa, right? But the dogs, as you mentioned, is just another one of those situations where Karsa is being intelligent and cunning and understands how dogs work and how the pack works and how to manipulate it. It would probably be far easier and less dangerous to just kill the dogs because they have swords that are two times as heavy and large as the dogs are. <laughs> so, had he wanted to, he probably could kill each one of the dogs and not worry about it. No, but they became an asset to him, right? So, yeah, as you say, he was pretty smart. Yeah. Getting the dogs and getting the horse and all that. Mm-hmm. It's, on one hand, it's expedient to have the dogs with you as a pack. On the other hand, he has to go out of his way to do it. He has to wait until it's nighttime. He has to wait until it's clearing. He leaves Byroth behind. You know, those are not major inconveniences, you know, to get a pack of dogs. It's not like he has to leave an apartment and go do it. He's anyway on the trail. Yes. He slips away and, you know, gets himself a whole pack. He's also been chased by, like, the Rathid. The Rathid? I don't remember. I think so, the ones that weren't actually enslaved. And he has to waste basically an entire day to get the dogs. It's a trade-off. But it's a trade-off he's willing to take and he calculates the risk and understands it. And it's like, hey, you know what? I'll just go through with it. Pretty smart. Good job, Garza. No, he's, he's very good with animals. Even when he chooses the jaguars, when he chooses Havoc, he first sees this uh, other proud stallion. Yeah, and then he says, you need the pack needs you. And he mm-hmm. leaves it behind. So, one more thing to, you know, he's, he's pretty smart. Yeah, no doubt about that. So hard not to talk about the other books, right? <laughs> I don't particularly mind it, honestly, because I haven't read the other books in a while, but <laughs> I can I guess it's killing you. So, 
he gets captured for the first time and oh the first time right the first time he gets captured is by uh, Silga right in Silver Lake Silga is bad he he's humanity at his worst at his worst so does the uh, house of chains have like extremely irredeemable characters yes you know there's no nuance right you don't feel sort of maybe these are gray characters and all yeah. i think i think like the first four character uh, four books have this where there's basically a central character bad well, except for guns to the moon i guess Ga- well guns to the moon has raised that is pretty bad Raised in Guns of the Moon is, but then we don't see him doing bad stuff, you know. <laughs> and because we see him at the end of uh, what Deadhouse Gates, isn't it uh, where we see him banter th- with mem- the? I think it's Memories of Ice, but yes, Memories of Ice. Yeah, so I I like Raised, so I don't feel anything bad about him. But Silgar and Biritel have, uh, you know, there's no redemption for them, and uh, we don't get many characters like that. There's also like Corbolo in Deadhouse Gates or Pornqual, but Pornqual dies, see? so fuck him. And someone else, which I will not mention, book three, Hispanian, who does get a redemption arc in the end. But Exactly, everyone has some... In the grand scheme of things, he's pretty unequivocally bad, and we root against him, no matter what everyone else does. See, it's Again, not about... In this book. Yes? It's not about just the character. It's about the way he's portrayed in the writing, right? Panion, ultimately, we are made to feel bad for him. But these two, it's not possible to do anything with them. Silgar and Biritan... There's just no coming back from what they are. They're 100% bad and there's nothing... There's no nuance there. It's just that. All I'm saying is we don't get many such characters in the whole of Malazan. Yeah. And this book has two of them. Right. Uh, so the first time Gatsaka is captured, he's still a bit, you know, of an airhead. <laughs> he's still convinced, sort of, of uh, tabular superiority and sees the Sunid, right? The fallen, fallen tabular... Yeah. And thinks weakness. They're weaklings. They they have forsaken the Templar ways for Lowlander ways, and now look at them. He doesn't make the connection that okay, this is the fate that will eventually befall all the Templar if we continue like this. And so, when the first time he gets captured, he still feels a bit, you know, you you know exactly what I mean. He's still arrogant as fuck. You're like, ah, whatever. I'm gonna get out of this no matter what. Yeah, he thinks it's like a big joke, and you know, the the next minute he's going to escape and run away. It's not even that. It's like he put the they tie him with chains to a log, and the guy breaks the log. <laughs> <laughs> it's and these were chains designed for Templar. You know, these are not just ordinary ones. It's madness. Yeah, and he even like pushes an arrowhead out of his back with muscles oh, stretching oh, yeah. and flexing, and that's when he meets his first foil in Torvald Gnome. The gnome, the daru. Right. <laughs> this is the first time we get to see too many words and their effect on Karsa. Oh, is it the first time he tells that? Yes. I think the first time he says too many words is to the Torvald. Um, Do you remember? Yeah, I think when he meets Leoman, he tells him that when Leoman talks some, you know, some roundabout stuff, he asks him, are you from Darujistan? <laughs> yeah. Because he thinks anyone talking, you know, stuff like that, uh, they have to be from Darujistan. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because uh, Karsa asks him if all Daru are like you. Like, yeah, more or less. <laughs> yeah, but then if he meets Krupp next. Uh... Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> We're digressing too much. <laughs> and Thor was like, okay, you know, I want you to drown me because I don't want to be captured here anymore. And he's like, well, actually, I had a change of heart. Well, I didn't. And then he just drops the log again and goes Thorval. <laughs> and then Thorval gets out. 
And yeah. you didn't need to do that. And hmm, you know what, Lolanda, you actually have my respect now. I'm listening. Yeah, but you, you know, remember when he asked him to drown him or, you know, crush him or something. Mm-hmm. I think Kasa tells him that, you know, this is not going to be a quick death and I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't that like the first time he like apologizes to someone? Yes. So, you know, it's not all bad, basically. Ah, of course not. If he was, then, he wouldn't be here. Yeah, but then I, uh, it was, it's pretty convincing when you start reading, right? That Kasa is the ultimate bad, the ultimate 100% bad guy. No, 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 I don't think... No, that's how I thought. So, so Torvald avoids drowning, and Carter's like, hey, you know what, you actually have my respect now, so can you break me out? And he's like, okay, sure. And then he just breaks the log, as I mentioned, which is madness. The two of them get out. Yeah, and then when they actually escape... Oh, that, that was a good scene, right? When he thinks that one of the Surin uh, insults him, mm-hmm. he just goes ahead and breaks the, uh, the, the whole thing. Yeah, and then, of course, he goes witness. And uh, he shows some... Prudence in not, you know, not killing the Tsunid immediately. Because they tell him that if he kills them, uh, he's going to get caught again. Like, even if his chains are free, he can't escape. Mm-hmm. So he takes that into consideration. Maybe before he was captured, he wouldn't have thought such things. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody insults him and the next thing to do is yeah. to kill them. But here he has to stop, think about it and, you know, not kill him so that he can escape. And what does he do? Torvald immediately runs away. And this guy says, I'm too good for that. I'm not going to run away. And, he's, uh, you know, he goes on a rampage, right? And he tells him he has 50 heartbeats and then I will go after the city. And then Torval leaves and he's like, yeah, fuck, I'm not winning 50 heartbeats. I'm going to use it now. And, uh, yeah, he kicks in doors in the village to find different things. And eventually he happens upon his old weapons, his armor. He dons the armor. He paints it with blood oil and he goes on a rampage. And then the Malazans arrive and, well, suddenly... Well, bad news. Yeah, they have a good mage, basically, who can... Ebron, I think it was, the mage from the Ashok Regiment. That yeah, Ebron. Essentially, almost ki- cast a spell that would normally kill a human being, and then Carter just shrugs it off and just keeps going. <laughs> no, it's the Dendravi spell. The one they used to control Dendravi, mm-hmm. basically. That's the one they use on Karsa. And even that, he, I think, destroys it in you know, a few days. They assume he's in severe pain because of that. Obviously. And I think pain goes away immediately and even the sorcery goes away in quite in quite soon. And sort of that is where he starts pretending that he's lost his mind, right? Yeah, when he's first captured and put in chains. And he's just like, oh, we can't cut. There's no wagon big enough to carry him. So we'll just put him on the bed of like this table and we'll just carry the table with it. Or rather the wagon bed rather than... So we'll just carry the entire wagon along with cars because nothing else will fit him. And they even load the entire thing out of the ship, mm-hmm. you know. But it's really sad, you know. They just keep him chained like that for months together or something. You felt bad about him. I didn't. I'll be honest. I, I really you, didn't. What? I did not. I'm sorry. You, you thought he deserves to be put in chains like that? To a certain extent, yes. I don't, I don't know about you, but uh, I felt really bad <laughs> for him. It was a bit poignant. It wasn't like fun, you know. It's like reading for listen, right? It's not fun. What? It makes you feel bad. Yeah, but nobody deserves that type of treatment. Um, my personal dislike for cars aside. Yeah. Uh, but you started saying you liked him, and now all of a sudden you're saying it's okay if he's chained. So cars after chapter four is a lot better when he goes out of the jacket and stuff. But until he learns to be humbled by the Malazans, by Torvald, by Leoman, he's still a bit of an arrogant ass. 
and the rapist and the murderer and you get the idea so to some extent he deserves it yes um one other thing that i found quite interesting about carcer is we mentioned this earlier but his affinity for learning a lot of languages he learns Daru from torvald he learns malazan just by listening to the soldiers he learns the seven cities language whatever leoman speaks later quite quickly quite smart in that regard what else is there? Also, at some point, he gets bashed over the head of the shovel and then pretends he lost his mind. So that was fun. He also goes unconscious a lot. Like, he loses consciousness a lot throughout the book. For the entire, like, uh, chapter 3 and 4, he's just unconscious for half the time. For one, one thing, it's really clever to, you know, not show us the passage of time. It's, it would have been boring, right? Yeah, it's just a nice way to keep the story moving. And that way we are locked into his POV. So... I think it's when he is pretending to be, uh, like, you know, checked out. I think that's when he starts, like, questioning himself, like, you know. Yeah, he starts losing his sanity. He's like, am I actually insane or am I just pretending? And um, he later says, like, um, he originally would say too many words and shut up and you talk too much, too horrible. And then when they discuss their partnership... Carl says, like, okay, you, I will only kill you if you try to betray me or kill me. I'm like, what about talking too much? That is probably a curse I'm going to have to live with. Yeah. So. <laughs> but I think somewhere he, uh, you know, he acknowledges that his words were like, you know, food for his soul or something. It was the only thing that kept him sane, yes. Yeah. So, on one hand, he considers Thorvald's vacation as to be a curse. On the other hand, it saves him. So, he's a bit split in that regard. Which I found hilarious because yeah. even from then on, Garza is not particularly the type of guy to engage in long speeches. He is in later books, but not in this one. <laughs> um, hang on. Uh, right, Malazan's and his capture. Eventually, after presumably fainting another 40 times, he presumably calls up a storm. It's written in the text that like everyone tells him to send the, the storm away. And Carter yeah. just grumbles towards, and no one can understand them. And then they throw him overboard, and it's revealed in the text that he, what he was kept saying was just go away to the storm, like leave. I don't want to die. He's not gonna say go away to the people that chained him because he, the alternative is dying, throw, being thrown overboard. So in that regard, he's quite savvy. You know, he Carter a year ago would probably just say go fuck yourselves. I'm not doing anything. And just sit there and die. Carter <laughs> now. The third time he gets captured, it's like, oh, I'm just going to put down my weapon to get captured. <laughs> but we're jumping ahead again. So, after the storm, and he escapes, and he gets to the Nascent Realm, which is a fragment of Umberlan, right? Um, and then he's, unfortunately for him, probably, locked with Torvald again. And I think it's, it's in the Nascent that Garza first really starts to develop his relationship with, Gar- uh, with Torvald, where he considers him more or less an equal. Yeah, I, th- I mean, they actually have some... They have to work together there, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. I think he's still bound on, like, the wagon bed and is about to drown in, like, knee-deep water. And he feels incredibly poignant about it. Like, oh, <laughs> God damn it. I lived through all of this to drown in knee-deep water. Oh, but then he tells a nice thing to... Uh, I think at that exact scene, he tells Torvald that nothing more can be asked of you, Torvald, no yeah. matter. And the guy feels, you know, he feels bad for him. And ultimately, they figure out a way to escape. If there's one thing we know of the Eater in House of Chains, it's that they are full of hubris, and they tell Karsa to kneel. And Karsa's like, yeah. I kneel to no one. And then Torvald turns around and says, I could kneel for both of us, and you'll be fine. <laughs> but um, that's the thing that happens. I mean, don't don't the Eater have some sense? They see this seven-foot guy with a face... Uh, oh, he doesn't have a tattoo no, yet. Yeah. Yeah. They just see this guy 
who you know who's probably not normal and then they just tell him you know just kneel in front of us cars actually says they ne- they've never fought the top at tableau before and Thorvald's like, how do you know? And then he just swings his sword, kills the people. They were in my reach. Uh, yeah, so they don't actually know what he is. The closest thing they have to that is probably the Barkast and the legends, right? Compared to a Tableau, the Barkast look like normal humans. So they didn't know what the fuck that guy was, and their sorcery doesn't work on him. So, the, well, well, shit. And um, Thorvald's reaction to this, I already mentioned, it's hilarious. It's hysterical. I love Thorvald. I could have done for both of us. I could have done twice and it would be fine. Yeah, and then he goes on to the captain's cabin, right? And he feels the sorcery there, right? Uh, there is a mage, Edul, who tries to... Cast a spell on him and then fails and then he spears him to the ball. Yeah, but do you remember he says something like he could feel a presence there and even that presence he was able to throw away. Was it uh, his Tevlor god or was it Crippled god? Judging by the fact that it's an Edul, it's probably the Crippled god. I mean, according to Thrall, anyway, that says that the Edul now serves the Crippled So... So that's what, uh, they're all disappointed that he's not cooperating with them, the Templar gods and the Cripple God. <laughs> so that's how the Salanda ends up in wherever it is where Gessler and Stormy and Truth and go find. Yeah. And that is Torvald's work, right? Uh, putting all the heads into <laughs> small bags. <laughs> that's certainly one hell of a backstory for a ship that's commandeered by um, grey-skinned, seal-skin-wearing warriors and driven by black-skinned uh, oarsmen with no heads. So like some random ass giant just came and killed everyone and then some his friends <laughs> stuffed all the heads to a bag and left. <laughs> no, but uh, when you read it the first time, how was all this? Like, were you able to get everything? No. I was utterly confused. Like, I didn't know that who is the grey skin fellows and who are the black skin fellows. And uh, I think it even says that some of the headless uh, oarsmen, some of them are evil actually. They're not entirely Andy. I think they're Andean humans because the Salanda was a trade ship. Andean humans. It was a trade ship sanctioned to the Rift Valley. So that's where the Ant came from. And I didn't know that these were like recently killed fellows. Uh, those few eaters on the deck and the captain and all. So actually, uh, they can't really uh, move the Salanda, right? No. Because it's just knee-deep water. So they just leave it around. Do you know how many times they keep uh, resupplying? They come across a ship. They take some supplies. They come across another <laughs> ship, take more supplies. Did you notice it? I, I don't know. I found it very funny. Uh, they're crafty, you know. They're... It's just two people. And I don't know how many supplies they need, you know. I mean, is Car suddenly just one person, though? Like, doesn't he come from more than one? Sort of, but he's... Anyway, <laughs> digression over. Uh, so, after the two of them leave the National Realm, they end up with a uh, keeper, right? We don't actually know who he is in Hazard Chains. We have a pretty good idea. We don't know who he is, actually. We don't really know at any point, right? We're not explicitly told that this is him. Don't remember, actually. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. I was told by someone. I, I never guessed or anything. Anyway, it's someone. It's Keeper, right? A Napan who has emptied half the Aran treasury and is faking his own death, right? I think that should be enough to... In hindsight, I'm sure that's enough to know who who exactly Keeper is. We're not going to get into it now. The point is, Keeper's a tree. He's massive. He has presumably yeah. a, li- a big lizard skeleton, which is totally a chain, but it's totally a Kel Hunter. I'm calling it now. It's probably not a Kel Hunter, but it looks like Chain Chamal. And he built, presumably, an entire tower to house the lizard, and it just wouldn't fit, so he had to keep growing it higher. <laughs> 
And then Karsa comes in and just like starts to sass him and like I kneel to nobody. This cracks his rib with a single hit, and Karsa just loses his mind. Like, hang on. I know. Even when he's fainting, you know, he gives him a look of admiration and then faints. Are Are you thinking that is a Kel Hunter? Because some of it looks like you know a T Rex. I think it's a Chain Jamal. I don't necessarily think it's a Kel Hunter specifically, uh, but you know, I think it could be a Chain Jamal. The way he was mentioning about the bones and. how the upper limbs were so small and that's why he he had the scale was off so keeper breaks his ribs uh and then he leaves and gets ambushed by silga because silga you cannot trust the bastard he die probably yeah that was little boring you know silga keeps coming back again and again and yeah so they captured him again for the third this third time right yeah and Rather than trying to fight back he just goes okay you know what karsa here ago would have charged them probably died Karsa now just surrenders. So that's growth in a way. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, and so um, Silgard puts on some chains on him, which definitely don't fit him. And he's like, "I'm just gonna, ki- yeah. I'm, I'm not even gonna kill you. I'm just going to maim you completely. I'm going to cut off all your limbs and just keep you as a toy or some such. This I'm an asshole. A plaything. Um, and then they because that Silgard's a fucking idiot. They happen upon Malazans and. Karsa doesn't have a brand or a mark or anything that denotes him as a slave, so he kidnapped a guy with no brand. Which, on the one hand, good on the Malasans for not allowing this. On the other hand, the flimsy excuse of he doesn't have a brand, so let's brand him with the face tattoo. Yeah. Um, I was really guy. That's that's the problem here. Not the not the slavery part. The problem is just he didn't have a mark. Yeah, but then they did need slaves for the the mines, right? So it was all sanctioned slavery, which is uh, and you know, sort of that is what the essay. You know, we haven't yet started discussing. I think the entire essay is basically that. What exactly? That even uh, you know, there are no real saviors mm-hmm. here. Then I I actually forgot that who gave him the face tattoo. I thought it was Silka, and it turns out yeah, it's the Malasans. Yeah, I mean. I don't actually know why I felt about that. On the one hand, it's a bit poignant. On the other hand, it's like he deserves it. Yeah, is that what you thought? I don't think that he deserves it. I just didn't think it would be very important. I honestly might even have a fantasia because I just couldn't picture Carsa with like a face tattoo. I just kept picturing a big bald dude with long hair and a sword. I don't know. No, actually, I keep forgetting his face tattoo. It's just that all fan art are really good, you know. Yes, yes, yes. They show him with the proper thing, and I keep forgetting that he has uh, the seashell armor and all that. So, right, he gets covered the third time. He meets Leoman, which totally isn't Leoman. We don't technically know it's Leoman yet, but it's totally Leoman because you know, yeah, the seventh is native with blue eyes that we mentioned earlier. Leoman. <laughs> When did you catch that that was uh, Toblaka? I think someone told me before I even got the hat of chains, and I just didn't worry about it. Uh... I didn't really care. It didn't even seem important. I didn't. I didn't even remember who he was. Like, uh, just some random guy, and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, he gets the rock eventually. Cool. Which, on one hand, I oh, I was too shocked to continue. You know, when I found the reveal, I was like, because I have been talking about Toblakai, you know, on the sub with my friend. On the other hand, like, I think it's a bit misleading because Toblakai and Jerkaskates is a fucking idiot. He's portrayed as an idiot. And Karsa is somebody smart. Karsa, uh, Toblak, like, I barely speaks. Like he, but it makes sense, you know, because uh, we see Toblak I through, we we see him through Heboric mainly, right? You could say he's pretending on the one hand, but on the other hand, like we see Karsa in Araku before Doit House Gates, and he's a lot not stupid. 
<laughs> but he does also yes sorry i'm just saying that you know uh, usually when you say that this person is being a strong silent type it does come across as being dumb also right you're not going to think he's some super smart guy just because he's uh, he's a good sportsman or hunts lizards for food and all that <laughs> anyway i mean the first thing he does is to say i won't talk to you anymore so i vow and then that's it anyway thank you so much again uh so yeah i only found out uh double like i was a car so before i even got the hustle chains and then i didn't actually mind that at all i just thought oh okay cool neat i think it isn't particularly obvious until you get to seven cities from then on yeah you can probably take a hint that big dude wooden sword seven cities lady with blue eyes flails you know you can take a hint but until then it's a bit more vague i think plenty of people got about his wooden sword eventually uh for the last time he actually managed to escape the malasans catch up to him he escapes mind you with leoman's help and leoman actually goes to find mebra and we know mebra from the house gates he was the guy that had the book of drishna he gave that to kalam and then kalam moved on and leoman just goes oh, okay mebra i guess turned because the malasans are chasing us through a secret entrance and they shouldn't know about it well i guess i'll kill him eventually and karsa likes uh, karsa goes like something along the lines of um do you kill all the people who you don't trust and he's like well, if i did that i'd have scandal company <laughs> Yeah. Which I think is extremely telling of Leon's character. He doesn't trust anyone. He mm-hmm. is faithless. He doesn't much care for this rebellion, religious aspects. He is just here because he is a freedom fighter. So, but yeah, why does he not kill Silga? Because he's sadistic. Because he's a, like, yes, he chops off his limbs and takes him as a fucking plaything, and he attacks leprosy and almost dies. Yeah, but Kasa is not exactly a sadist. Yes, know, he is. This is the only time he tortures someone. Yes. I'm not going to argue it wasn't deserved, because Silgar deserves that worse, but that's why he did it. Yeah, but... No, I'm just saying that, you know, it, it's slightly out of character. I... Yes, he, maybe. Uh, he has no harm, you know, he has no doubt killing people and all that. He doesn't hesitate. But to torture, you know... It's completely against his... Uh, he does say, yeah, that the, uh, torture is not the table way. And Leoman actually talks him out, but tells him not to do it. But he does it anyway. And then he regrets it. At the end of the house of change, like, yeah, I should have killed I you immediately. I think one thing is because, you know, he put those tight uh, cuffs on him. Maybe that just irritated him when he wanted to cut off his hands and feet. But even then, it's extremely out of character. But don't call him sadistic. He's just this one guy... <laughs> So, okay, starting that sadistic streak of Karl's aside, what else is there to discuss? So, he comes to the camp in Darago, right, and he, we see most of that, the early part of that, Darago's gate, where he's a bodyguard, he fails in protecting the Sadiq Elder, and he fights for Lysin, and yada yada. And a lot of his storyline in House of Chains in Darago is actually, first of all, his shrine that he has dedicated to his gods, first of all, and his uh, two friends, and his interaction with Sheikh, because Sheikh in House of Chains is very conflicted, shall we say, and we'll leave it at that, because that's a whole big can of gold I'm not going to open, and Toblakai, oh, Kasa, mirrors that conflict, in that he, he too is conflicted and torn between what he wants, and what his gods want, and what is better for him and his people, and again, what his gods want. For Felicin, those two goals mostly align, because killing Tavo and killing everyone are 
close enough for Casa, no chains, and chains are direct opposites, so he can't have both. And so he fashions the seven faces in the rock to create them, right, and summon them, so that they can meet him and talk to him, and so he can dispel them and banish them and tell them to stop toying with the tableau. But he also makes statues of his friends, because it is a way for him to remember them, to, you know, um, so he fashions statues of his friends because he wants to remember them and because he values their their input. Even Byroth, who is sarcastic and a bit of an asshole to him, Tellum, who lost his mind and doesn't speak much, he values them as well and because he feels responsible for them, even if he's arrogant and a prick. He generally takes words very seriously. And thus, anything that he says, I mean, one example of this is Torvald saying, lead me, and like, are you sure you want me to lead you, Lowlander? And like, just lead me out of here. There is an implicit relationship of responsibility between Carson and his friends, and the fact that the two of them died weighs on him. It's on his conscience, because he failed at leading them. And this resonates a lot with him, because by those last words, were lead me war leader before he was slain and just... And he was killed, you know, directly because of what Karsa said. No, like they asked Karsa, will you give us the tableau details? And he says, of course, it's not going to matter because, you know, you guys have nothing again, uh, you have nothing on us. As soon as he says that, they killed Bairoth because Bairoth has been holding off, right? He's not told him anything about the tableau, uh, their geography or anything. So at some point he would have realized that Bairoth was killed just because he opened his mouth and said, yeah, sure, I'll give you all the tableau details. And so that weighs on him. Yeah, he he obviously feels guilty, and he's right in feeling guilty because he killed the bite off. But that aside, he feels guilty. And so Karsa goes through a crisis of faith, which is essentially already begun from his journey all the way to Raragu, and it solidifies here. And then it culminates in his journey out of Raragu through the passes, through rather uh, the city, his skirts, through the mountains, where he finds Landeras and he says, I'm not going to fight you because you're going to kill me because you've been running nonstop for three days and three nights and just, what the hell, I'm just going to leave. Let me just give you a word of warning. Just up ahead, there's two guys. And if you meet those guys, something really bad will happen. So just avoid them. You know, when people say that Casa has like plot armor and all, I think this is one of the reasons, because as far as you can see from the text, there's really no reason for Rilandras to you know, not fight him. Just because he ran for three days and he didn't get tired, that doesn't mean he's, you know, he's something great that he, uh, Rilandras can't face in a battle. I, mean, I think Rilandras also is tired, because he too has been running for three days and three nights. And at this point, if you've been chasing a quarry for three days and he's been running non-stop, then you just have some semblance of respect for him. He's running it through knee-deep snow, and he just doesn't care. He warns, warns Karsa about Ikarium and Mapo right up ahead, and he's like, I'm just going to go meet them, what's, what's going to happen? Ikarium goes to him and is like, hey, rather, Karsa goes to Mapo, and he's like, will you step in my way? And Mapo returns with something like, only if you give a reason to. And then Ikarium comes up and, Ka- yeah. and asks Karsa, are you my enemy? And Karsa likes, only if you have to give me a reason to. And they do battle, and Ikarium breaks his sword, and Karsa gets so pissed that he floors him with a fist to face. Like, yeah. okay. And Mapo just, like, clubs him down the head. Just like, oh, God, that, oh, well, good, that could have been worse. So, Mapo is like the bouncer, you know? He clubs Ikarium, he clubs Karsa. <laughs> Anyone who is not following the... 
know? You even, I think there's even like a description of uh, Mapo unstringing his club even before the two of them meet. Like, he just sees them, oh, god damn it, it's not ugly. And, um, oh, is that so? Um, and when Icarium knocks out, uh, no, Karsa knocks out Icarium and uh, Mapo just knocks him out in one hit, it's like, hmm, going to waste it a bit. Like, that could have gone better. That could have gone a lot worse, though. <laughs> not, not, it's, he's on the one hand he's exa- is exasperated because he's tired of this happening people trying to challenge Zagarium because that's bad yeah. <laughs> yeah. on the other hand he's happy that they didn't actually end the world this time around I think that's more of a cameo rather than an actual like story relevant appearance Karsa is so powerful he can apparently fight Zagarium there's no other way his uh, bloodwood sword gets destroyed right that too yes and then Anyway, he goes to mm-hmm. Telan. Who leads him there? I think I think his friends tell him that this is a path you can follow. Do you have anything to add there? I think it's quite uh, important. Uh, when he meets the the jagged, mm-hmm. how do you say that? Aramala? Yes. Uh, you know, actually, until I read some posts to the subreddit, I didn't realize that they might have slept together, these two. I don't think so. Anyway. anyway. But th- this is where he learns all, uh, most of the stuff about his gods and how to find the jag horses mm-hmm. and all that. Then he says bye to Aramala and goes on, right? One more thing about Aramala is that she's bound by Telen wards. And she's yeah. like, uh, she tells him, don't do not do this for This <laughs> yeah. is high Telen. He just turns around and goes, and I am Karsa Orlong of the Tableau. He just walks in through the wards, pulls her out and just leaves. <laughs> he kicks away those things. It's like, what the fuck is it made of? What? What? Who does yeah. that? Who does that? Casa, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. Yeah. So, then he meets Sinekig, which apparently hides himself in the Jagodan in a chest, which is... I think before Sinekig, he uh, goes around making his sword. His flint sword. Isn't it? Or is it after? I think... No, he has the sword before he picks the horse, right? Uh, maybe. <laughs> and he makes his own flint sword and all the gods, uh, his seven gods, they yes. sit there and watch... And as soon as he makes it, the first thing he does is slice the veil. Yeah. And that's when they exchange, like, um, our god is chained, then I will break his chains. We are pleased. And then I will kill him. That's when that happens. True, true. And the thing is, this was nice because, you know, he slices Sibel, <laughs> her head and right neck and mm-hmm. shoulder, right? Like, right shoulder and arm. And the remaining body parts is what yeah. <laughs> Andra comes and takes on. Because he's lost his left side because he's a left-handed swordsman. So, I think that is fun. On one hand, I think uh, I yeah, think the, uh, the line about I uh, will kill him too is like pretty great banter. But on the other hand, it's also genuine character development of Akasa. So, on one hand, you have like Akasa going like, yeah, you know what? Maybe he shouldn't be chained. But I will also kill him for putting chains on me. Which I think is... Uh, if you go back, somewhat unrelated, but if you go back to Memories of Ice, one of the reasons that Lanimas uh, are given to have gone against the Jaghood is because the Jaghood played gods on the Mass, and then you have the Unbound doing the same thing to the Tableau. So history repeats itself. It is, yeah, yeah. That was a nice touch, actually. That aside... Um, Your favorite, Sinigig, go on. But Sinigig is the Jaghood version of Thorvald, and it's great. He talks a lot, and like Carson's husband tells him because he knows that it's be fruitless otherwise so like do you know about this no but i'm afraid you'll tell me anyway <laughs> it's great yeah. it's, it's great but fearless which is the track with the tree first of all that's extremely poignant yeah just the fact that that's what happened anyway uh and then fearless apparently puts out yes go on 
Yeah, he picks havoc. I'm saying. Uh, before that, Fearless allegedly put out a call for like the drag horses to come, and yeah. they expect like a dozen to come, and then like a few hundreds come. And, like, well, hang on, Cindy just goes like, "Did you do that?" <laughs> no, I think he did. And that's really interesting because we learn through this that the Tableau were actually breeding drag horses because they have comings and goings to the Carrium in the past. But then that was quite obvious, right? It was obvious to he- wasn't obvious horses. to me. <laughs> I just thought they would be horses. Yeah, but it was quite obvious that they have these special horses and they have to, you know, they don't need any saddles and all. So after um, Kat ends with his journey and gets a drag horse and returns, which the entire journey basically started because A, I need to deliver my goods and B, I need a horse and a sword, yeah. which is... He didn't well, need he didn't a sword, sword when no, he started. No, he just needed a horse. He's like, okay, there are drag horses on the down and you can get one that's big like Havoc and like, oh, I'm going to gonna go get a horse. And you know this guy, you know, he's not good at naming things. <laughs> Do you know what he calls his flint sword? <laughs> he calls it Beirut's oh, It's symbolic. It's for his friends. Because... And then he calls the horse Havoc. I have no defense for that. That one is... <laughs> and then he calls the chief's daughter Dalis. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> he called the chief's daughter Dalis and she's almost disappointed to learn that she doesn't even want... Like, he doesn't even care about her name. Yeah. We're digressing a lot. Oh, yeah, <clears throat> this is going to be a pain to edit. I'm not. Uh, I'm just going to release the whole thing. Anyway, like I was saying, <laughs> um, so he returns after he gets a horse. Carsa is now returning back to the camp. Yes, yes. So Carsa returns to the camp, and essentially he has a list of people he wants to kill. Right? He says, uh, "I think it was Bidithal. I think it was Haboric at some point. All of them. The, the entire camp. Uh, Corbolo." Camistrello, a lot of people basically. Mm. He first asks about Leoman and he goes to the uh, Skilar and Felicin and basically asks, Where are these people? And then I think it's Felicin that realizes he's going to kill all these people. Except except Leoman. <laughs> except for Leoman. So, in a way, Kansa is on his way to become the Hand of Justice because he thinks it should be. These people should be pun- because he thinks they've gone up unpunished long enough. Mm. There's Pedithal, obviously, who you know, there's the schemes that people like Orbolo or Febril have been going through. There's poor old Camisello, which honestly, beyond being just the rebel commander, hasn't really done anything bad. He's just tagging along for the ride, and everyone's just tagging the poor guy down. He's even loyal to some extent. Are you talking about Corbolo? No, no, no Camis- the, the high maids. Okay. Corbolo is an idiot, is an idiot and an asshole. Nobody likes Corbolo. Yeah. So he returns, and uh, first of all, I think the first person is Silga by just stabbing him in the back. Ah, oh, yeah. He stabs him in the back of the neck, I think. Somewhere, yeah, somewhere. He just stabs him. Um. After that, there's the scene with Bidithal, which we're not going to get into because it's absolutely brutal and um, deserved for sure, but brutal. Yeah. What's after that? And then he kills the other, the guy with the F name. Febril. snaps uh, Febril's spine, yeah. And I think that's all he kills, right? He doesn't find the others. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. He doesn't find Taboric, he doesn't find Corbolo, he doesn't find Camist. How will he not find Corbolo and Camist? Camist, I think, was killed by Pearl, probably, and then Corbolo was captured by Kalam. I read only Karsa part, so I don't know the others. Okay. So yeah, uh, Leoman left with Mafok, and... And your favorite... Leoman goes along with Korab, right? Oh, yeah, Korab and Mafok. And they leave and they go to Gigaton, and Mafok is tasked with 
harassing the 14th until they get there. And Fade to Black, because, you know, the Vorkin fell in Fade to Black. Yeah. But before the Fade to Black, Karsa comes along and says, you know what, guys, I once vowed that the Manhattans are my enemy, but I see that I was wrong, and my youthful folly <laughs> bullshit, it doesn't say any of that, it just says, you guys are all right, I'm leaving. Yeah. So, there's that scene. What did you think of the scene where he just walks up to Poe and just says, you know what, actually, you're fine. Yeah, but, you know, more than Karsa's side, I was very happy to see Tavo responding, you know, with a simple, dry, we are glad. <laughs> I think that's all that yeah. she tells him. Something like that. Yeah, and then uh, where does Karsa go, actually, at the end of House of Change? He just leaves and heads off into the Dragodan. He just rides west or something, isn't it? I'm pretty sure, yes. Hang on, let me... Write. Yeah, yeah, he, he rides west. But what was his, you know, what was his goal? Like, where is he headed? Let me find it, hang on. Um, so, he takes a ball and throws her into, into the sea. Yeah. So, she's... He obliterated. And then just says, sword once more slung on his back, havoc once more solid beneath him, the top of the chiral from the sword line, west into the wastes, and that's the end of the last chapter. It's a nice way to end it, but you know, it makes no sense. Like, where is he going? I don't know. He rides into the sunset. The brave warrior rides into the sunset. Very odd. Like, in a way, because where would he go? What is his goal at this point? I don't know. If you take the entire story like a fairy tale or something. This is how it's supposed to end, right? It starts with his village and then maybe he's going back home or something. Yeah. He, it's but not his home west. is not west. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So where is he going? What is his long-term plan? Who knows? Maybe he wants a mate for habit. Maybe. He's such an animal lover. He might, you know. How nice. <laughs> Too many words. And uh, I think this is a good time to get into the essay. That Steve wrote about Karsa. Yeah. Which is a tiny bit on the spoilers all side. But is it? I mean, it deals a lot with civilization and Karsa rejecting civilization and hating civilization and stuff. There's no specifics. It doesn't spoil anything. Uh, I guess so. It doesn't. No, that's true. Anyway. So, Karsa, I think, well, I don't think, I'm pretty sure it's confirmed, is essentially a deconstruction of the barbarian elves type. On one hand, like Steve says, you have the Dark Horde, right? Attila the Han, the Goths, the Mongols. The Mongols in popular culture because the Mongols were actually considerably more civilized than what we actually think of them in Europe today. I don't know if it's any different there, but here they're just, you know, portrayed as, like, barbaric people that came from the West or the East, rather. From the North. Well, they think it was the North, because we're fairly North, too. And uh, for them, the ones that actually came, they came from the East. But the point is, they were put the barbaric dark hordes with, like, Attila, I think, which is from, like, 450 BC, uh, was described as the scourge of God, you know, a punishment for the unbelievers, or the faithless. And then there's the noble savage trope. Yeah. Where a man who is unsullied by the quote-unquote gifts of civilization. A pure soul. Uh, a soul that has not been touched by the corrupting and decadent, the corrupting influence and decadence of organized society and civilization and stuff. Karsa is neither of those things. But yeah, I'm just saying that at least at the beginning, you sort of assume that he's a noble savage because he has his own code of honor and he believes in his code. Mm-hmm. And the way that society is portrayed and all that, it's very uh, back-to-the-roots type of a uh, lifestyle, right? Sort of. Yeah, but then, as the essay says, like, how much can you push this type of barbarian society? Mm-hmm. 
it's it's easy to romanticize all this right it's it's mm-hmm. easy to lose the romanticism when you see it through uh, the tableau society yep which brings us to our next point that tableau society while not by perhaps scarcer standards from what he later learns isn't civilized per se it is stagnant it is decadent it is corrupted if you will by the lessons of civilization as he calls them yeah. it's not just a set of villages and every man for himself and a sense of unity and loyalty there's raiding there's rapes there's uh, that while he may consider them natural now he may consider them to be the way it's always been and the way it should be now and while he rejects civilization's gifts of slavery like above all slavery yeah. both literal and figurative in the case of literal slavery because he's bound a lot and as a slave and damas uh, silga is a slave master but also figuratively in that these people are loyal to some faraway empire that theoretically should have no control over their everyday lives and yet uh the seven cities people for example try to throw away the chains of the malazan empire only to welcome new chains of the whirlwind rebellion exactly so he thinks this now but looking back we can see that the same can be said of the tableau where they rejected civilization and they went to the lydron plateau after something happened with themas and the carium only for them to sort of get back to this stagnant decadent society that has been building for centuries now so the question that erickson then poses is this really any better are they any less arrogant are they any more noble if yeah, you will yeah. and i think he answers pretty evidently no yeah. which is interesting it's a very interesting thing to talk about on one hand the romanticized notion of barbarism as you said of uh, nature of a man unsullied by civilization and on the other hand disease rape destruction and you know plain ignorance weaponized ignorance yes exactly yeah but you know uh, the other side also uh, you think of civilization as something that is in some of the tropes you think civilization is the bad thing you know it's always better to oh, be yeah. one with nature and do a hunt, be in a hunting gathering society and stuff like that and civilization is the evil thing but when mm-hmm. you see a culture like the tableau you think that civilization is the savior who have mm-hmm. their own uh, what do you call legislation and a mode of governance and all that but then here there is still he just paints gray to both barbarianism and civilization they're both equally mm-hmm. gray and it just makes everything the same you know that that's what i took out of that essay the way he has written both carson and the malasans here hmm i think when he is not subtly jabbing at a certain article from a certain author <laughs> <laughs> I um he very specifically wrote cards to be this sort of deconstruction of barbarian trope of the noble savant trope and Conan Carsa is very obviously not very Conan-esque he he has similar actions to what Conan does but not romanticized at all it's plainly there he is a murderer he is a rapist he is not a good person we should not romanticize this fellow but is the gifts of civilization as he calls them later any better yeah so i think what direction concludes is we as readers ourselves have kind of stagnated into a sort of if he calls it nihilistic i don't think i agree i don't think it's nihilistic oh no that particular article was about dust of dreams yes i know well, dust of dreams is very uh you know 
Pleak. But specifically about Garza and the Noble Savage throw, Steven goes on to call it nihilistic. I don't think it's a nihilistic inherently throw. Uh, what I do think it is, is it symbolizes sort of a stagnation in the modern fantasy reader, in that we have accepted in real life, outside of escapist literature, the gifts of liter- of uh, civilization, as he, as Steve and Carcer want to call them, what he concludes to be taxes and wage slavery and stuff. Yeah. We have accepted a loss of freedom. Um, but on the contrary, we then go to embrace freedom as a destructive force of nature, essentially, <laughs> that doesn't obey to any laws and does what he wants and forces might. Might is right sort of mentality and do we want that is that good and obviously the answer steve gives is no and so i don't believe that there's an inherent nihilism in the notion that we like the noble savage trope but i do think Carson just takes that trope and then just dumps all over it painting it with the blood of his enemies while not screaming witness and then returning a few years later and saying hmm, actually maybe not maybe i shouldn't do that because his nobility comes from him contemplating and understanding the gift that civilization gives, not the fact that he has never been embraced by it. His ignorance isn't his greatest gift. It's the fact that he learns and goes somewhere from there, not his inherent ignorance. He's open to learning, basically. Yes, yes. And I don't know, uh, usually a barbarian hero is not somebody who is going to grow or change or something. He's Mm -hmm. there to go on quests and, you know, finish the quest and give us entertainment. Mm Mm-hmm. I think in that way, Karsa was extremely interesting to read. For sure. But his uh, philosophy on civilization, I think we'll have a lot more of that in the next few books. Yeah, for sure. And those are my favorite ones. So, the question, of course, becomes, what is the takeaway here? What is the takeaway from Karsa's story? Witness. Yeah, that's one <laughs> takeaway, for sure. I don't know. One of the takeaways, I think, is this just continues the theme of having all morally gray characters. So, he's not perfect, you know. Of course. He's not. He's far from it. And he doesn't mm-hmm. end up being a nice guy or anything. But he is sort of true to himself. He has some honor code which he follows, which makes sense to him. And he's consistent with that. So, in that way, he, I think he deserves a lot of respect. I, I'm just talking about House of Chains, you know, even here. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So, that okay. was my takeaway. That he deserves respect regardless of what he does and what all the things he's done already. And because he's learning, he's changing. And ultimately, he's sort of, in one way, he's very honorable. What did you take away from his story? Civilization sucks. No, that's not true. Um, one really interesting conversation I had highlighted with Karsa is his approach to the Malazans and the em- and empires and like, civilization as a whole warps throughout the series, or rather through the book, not the series, it warps through the book because we go from tiny settlement at the edge of his known world to a massive three-continent-wide spanning empire yeah. in two chapters. And he has a conversation with Torvald Norm about seven cities and why it is the way it is. Mm. And Torvald goes, um, it's a cesspool run by priests and it's stagnated so long and then the Malazans came and suddenly those priests and those warlords were on the run spiked to the walls and everyone was happy and overall it's a land rife for rebellion <laughs> Yeah. and then Garza just goes hmm yeah I can see why that would be the case 
And he specifically called it, I've alluded to this before, the lessons of civilization, that one cannot accept dominion of another. They must be the masters of their own fate, even if they implicitly accept all the chains, as aforementioned by Steve, taxes, wage slavery, etc. But they maintain this conceit. Carsa comes along and shatters that conceit entirely, because you are a slave to the Madison Empire, you are a subject. Yeah. But the way to throw off that, uh, that those chains isn't to rebel and then install your own self as the new ruler of these people who just kill like half of them. So, on one hand, you have Karsa learning the lessons of civilization, and on the other hand, you have Karsa rejecting the gifts of civilization. And I think this approach to it is very interesting. To have a character actually, like I said before, the noble savage is a man that has not actually ever come into contact at all with civilization and doesn't understand it, nor does he care. Karsa learns about it, Karsa engages with it, and then Karsa rejects it. Yeah. And that's what makes him interesting. So, my takeaway is to be a bit more critical of such things, to not take such things for granted. Karsa is not necessarily a good person. He's not. He grows a lot throughout the book. He learns a lot of things. He's consistent. He's honorable. But he's not great. He is rarely compassionate and when he is it's a highlight he's more often than not he's very brunt and he's very what you see is what you get um but he's also not wrong in often often times about what he says about civilization and stuff yeah so maybe we ought to take a more critical approach to how we view this how we tackle this that was my takeaway from Carter's story at least because House of Saints is a lot bigger than that that's one of the takeaways but then his story continues so I mean, you said if he was a fairy tale, he would just drive west into the wastes and be gone, and everyone lived better forevermore. Yeah, actually, he could have disappeared from the story, and you know, I think maybe just Steve liked him so much that he brought him back. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Anything else you want to talk about? <sighs> probably, but nothing comes to mind now. Plus, as Carter says, want to say, I have probably said too many words. And I think major takeaway we have from Carter is he can't name anything. That is true. That is... Sorry. I think we should stop. I think this is a great place to stop, <laughs> yes. Thank you for... Thank you for <laughs> so, that was our meandering, rambling look at Carsa. If you have any feedback for us, you'll find us on Twitter and Reddit. The links are in the description. So for now, have a great day and we'll see you soon.